0: Uh, as Nigel said, the, the readings are Genesis 16, 1 to 14, and then uh, a couple of pages over, 21 to, uh, and 14 to 21. So starting with the first. Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So, so she said to Abraham, Abraham, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abraham, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms And now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abraham said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai ill-treated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going?' "'I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai,' she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, "'Go back to your mistress and submit to her.' The angel added, "'I will increase your descendants so much "'that they will be too numerous to count.' The angel of the Lord also said to her, "'You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. "'You shall name him Ishmael, "'for the Lord has heard of your misery. "'He will be a wild donkey of a man. "'His hand will be against everyone.' and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. And flipping over to chapter 21, that is 14 to 21. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went off and sat down about a bowshot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And as she sat there, she began to sob. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his, wife, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt.
1: It may surprise you, but I used to uh, sew occasionally. I used to sew quite badly, often. But whenever I sewed, I would do sew quite badly on the occasional time I did it. I used to do a bit of cross-stitch. Um, I'm sure you can tell from the uh, patches on my trousers occasionally. But uh, I wasn't very good at it, but I quite enjoyed it. It's It's kind of therapeutic and it's also good as someone who can be a bit clumsy sometimes because the needle is a bit fatter than the ordinary sewing needle. So if you were you to prick your finger, it's not too painful because it's it's a bit chubbier. So um, there you are and you've got a pretty regulated piece of material. When you start off with a pattern, you can choose to ignore it and go freestyle or you can choose to follow the pattern. <clears throat> and if you choose to follow the pattern, it's quite rhythmical and quite ordered, and you can write uh, your name or you can create an image, and it's very, very therapeutic. That's on the front side if it's going well. But were you to turn it over and look on the, the, the back of the, uh, the the back of the work, it's an absolute mess. It's chaos. I was watching a program recently on the Met Museum. It's the wonderful museum in Central Park in New York City, and how they coped with uh, the pandemic with loss of millions and millions of pounds. They focused on the need to raise funding from philanthropists, from wealthy people. And they were looking at the tapestry department and once again, you see this wonderful tapestry that's being restored, but then the camera went underneath and it's an absolute mess of odds and ends and bits and pieces, but on the top it's beautiful, but underneath it's a mess. There's some parallels of the knot in the book of Genesis when it comes to the life of Abraham that we've been looking at and Sarai too. I mean, on the surface, all is well. On the surface, what wonderful examples of faithfulness to God they are. But when you scratch beneath the surface, when you read what's happening in their lives, it's an absolute disgrace. It's a train wreck. It's a disaster. But God is oh so patient with people like Abram and Sarai and like you and like me as well. I mean, sometimes we just want to put on the facade that all is well, that all the stitches are in the right place of our lives. But when you get to know me, and if I was to get to know you a bit more closely, actually, the backside, the underside, the rear side of the tapestry, that's more like my life and our hearts. We're going to see that in chapter 16 as we journey quite slowly through the story of Abraham and Sarai. We're going to meet an exploited slave, you could say. A a slave, we're going to meet an ageing couple, we're going to meet a mysterious guest. These three or four characters are in the story and very simply without wanting to overstep the illustration, I just wanna pull one thread at a time and see where it leads us. And the first one is to a slave, an exploited slave. Let's have a look at her story. Her name is Hagar and if we were to go back to the well-trodden territory of Genesis chapter 12, we know that God has made big promises to make Abraham's name great, to bless the world through him, to give him a a protection and a security that will be unrivaled, to make him not just more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore, but to give him a land to enjoy. And it's not just going to be a a barren land, it's going to be a great land, because God will be there. But in verse 1 of chapter sixty we meet a, a problem. Abraham and Sarai are barren. There's no children in their lives. Verse 3 tells us that they've been in Canaan for 10 years of barrenness and hopelessness. I think it's quite hard as a man to appreciate how difficult that sentence is and that reality is to a woman in our culture, let alone as how harsh it was in the culture of the ancient Near East. But look at verse 2. We see the kernel of the problem. Verse 2 says, from the lips of Sarai, the Lord... She sees that this is from God. The promises made of chapter 12 have not come true. The Lord has kept me from having children. In other words, what she's saying, just to expand on that is, Abraham, you said, and you can imagine the finger coming out, you said that our God was going to bless us and bless the world through us. That they were going to be children. God knew that we are barren as an ageing couple. Not that many teenagers, so we won't go into the detail of how old they are. But God knew that we were aging and now we're even older and we still haven't had any kids. You promised, God promised and look where we are. Let's do something different. Verse 2, go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Now what she's suggesting may be odd to us but it's legal, it's culturally uh, appropriate or understandable in the age in which she lived. She's saying, Abraham, why don't you just take my maidservant as a second wife? I mean, God is not coming good on his promises, so why don't we take the matter into our own hand? Let's not wait for God anymore. Let's do our own thing. So look at verse 3. Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. When she got pregnant, if she did, and she did, because Hagar was Sarai's property, that would mean that Hagar's offspring Whose Ishmael would be Sarai's property as well. That's the, the flow of events. And it gets worse. Look at verse 5 and 6. When she, Hagar, knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. She was looking up at uh, Sarai, and she would just look her in the eye for once. She wasn't being looked down upon anymore. She could look her, her mistress in the eye and say, Look. I'm now a person of standing. I have your husband's seed in my room and I'm gonna give birth to an heir. In other words, we should not think of Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey, which is a wonderful programme, it's just too fast-paced for me, that's a joke, it's very slow, very genteel, all that blood and guts and act? no, not really. It's very gentle and it's a completely appropriate for Sunday nights, binge on it at some time if you've not seen it. But in the Downton Abbey setting, when there is the upstairs and the downstairs reality of a past generation in Britain. That's not what's being described here. It's not like a Joanne Froggart, who would earn her crust as a servant for Lady Mary. Lots of events happening in both of their parallel lives as you journey through the seasons or series of downtown. But when you have Hagar, Hagar is not an employee. She is property and that's going to become clearer as we go through. She's property. She, she might receive some money for her employment, but she's not a lady of standing. She wasn't someone who dressed smartly. She wasn't someone who brought tea or helped with clothing, that kind of thing. She was someone who could be disposed of very easily, as we see a little later on. But look at verse five and six as reality. As Hagar received the blessing of uh, motherhood, Sarai receives the curse of her tongue. And for once, the lady that she looked down upon, Hagar, was now someone who could look her straight in the eye because she was someone who had what she longed for, which was a full womb. Her status has changed. Perhaps she walked around a little bit taller. Perhaps she walked around with a bit of sass because I've got what you have longed for and you can't have. Perhaps it's not Abraham who's the problem. Perhaps it's you, Sarah. You can just imagine what may have been said behind the hand. And so now Abraham sends her out and by the time we get to chapter 21, it's horrible times again because she's on the verge of death and Ishmael who comes from her womb into life and is growing up, he's on the verge of death until God looks down and provides for them miraculously and she's free, but that's not where we are in chapter 16. She uh, has to run for her life, verse six. She's being mistreated harshly, we'll look at that more closely in a moment or two. But while she wants to run away from slavery to freedom, God does something that is very shocking to us, I think, as modern readers, because he says, don't run away, but go back. Go back and I will look after you. As a Christian, these are very difficult words, because in this chapter, you've got all the things that friends who Uh, but perhaps Christians and non-Christians alike struggle with. You've got uh, the issue of slavery. You've got the issue of women being mistreated. And you've got men behaving very, very poorly. And look at what happens here. Uh, She's pregnant. Um, She's being mistreated, down in verse 6. And yet God speaks to her in verse 7 and says, stay where you are, I will keep you safe. Sometimes, sometimes we get to see the top of the stitch work, the patchwork quilt. Sometimes we see the beauty of the tapestry, but most of the time we just see the underside, don't we? We see the mess and the confusion. We see the bits of uh, string and cord hanging down, the bits of wool that look like they should be tied in, but they're not. Sometimes God calls his people to do things that make absolutely no sense to us. They can be difficult, they can be dangerous, but God's goodness is unquestionable from the Bible and his purposes never fall to the ground unmet. We can't see the whole picture. Hagar surely was asking why. Why do I need to go back to that place of uncertainty and danger? Why do I need to go back to that environment where I'm being mistreated and overlooked and downtrodden? And it's as if God was saying to her, I want you to go back into that situation of extreme difficulty because that's the place and through your obedience that I'm going to bless the world. Can you live with a God like that? Can you live with a God not of your own making who calls you to do difficult things? If he is God, then obedience is what's required and sometimes that obedience is going into very difficult places. Are you willing to see the extremely difficult situations that God sometimes calls us to be patient in as the very place through which us he can bless other people? This is what we see from the exploited slave Hagar. Are you able to trust God in extremely difficult situations? Perhaps the main uh, point of the passage is not Hagar, but actually the focus is on this ageing couple. Let's think about them more closely. This ageing couple called uh, Abraham and Sarai, back to verse 2. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Literally it says, Abraham listened to the voice of Of his wife. Now, where have you heard that before? At the start of the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, where you've got Adam and Eve in the garden. And Eve says, I've got this wonderful fruit. Would you like to try some? And uh, Adam didn't just listen, but he listened and he obeyed. He uh, stood aside from his position of loving responsibility and he did what his wife said. He listened to the voice of his wife. And Abraham, here, just a fifth or thirteen chapters later, Abraham is here doing exactly the same thing. He's failing as a man, he's failing as a leader, he's failing as a husband because he's doing exactly the same thing that Adam did back at the start of the Bible. And when you zoom out and when you see the whole picture of the Bible, not just of the book of Genesis, you see in this passage two ways to approach God. Paul picks it up in the book of Galatians, which is in the New Testament. These two women are two approaches to God. You've got the way of works where you take things into your own hands and you've got the way of promise, the way of grace. You say, I'm going to have to wait on God. I'm going to trust God's goodness and for him to provide an heir is going to have to be an overwhelming act of God doing the impossible." He's going to have to do something miraculous. He's going to have to do something supernatural because, humanly speaking, we're both unable to produce an heir. For us to receive children, Genesis chapter 12 and into Genesis chapter 16, it's going to have to be a work of absolute grace of God. Or, rather than trusting God, we can take matters into our own hands and we can go the way of works. We can ignore God's promises and we can achieve everything that God has promised, but he's not coming through for us with by ourselves. That's something that we can do humanly speaking. Why don't you take her as a second wife, says Sarai. Take the hand and take uh, the evening together with my servant, Hagar. It's trusting God or taking matters into your own hand. It's this huge issue of barrenness. That is an issue of fertility, but actually every culture has its own definition of barrenness, of emptiness. And it's not just a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing, a deeply spiritual thing that says you will be barren unless you have this. It might be a child. It might be a family in a traditional culture, such as an Eastern culture. Unless you have children, you will be barren. You will be looked through and looked past and, and looked over in our society. But some societies have it in different ways. Unless you're successful, you're barren. Unless you have a great uh, CV, you're barren. Unless you have a great uh, resume, unless you have a great postcode, unless you have a great background, unless you have a great bank account, then you are barren. Every culture has something that says, unless you have that, then you're a nobody. And until you have this, then you'll never be a somebody. Every culture has something like that. It's a deeply spiritual value. And you will hate yourself. You will think low of yourself until you have that that relationship that and so on look at verse 2 what is it for Sarai what's the thing that she must have I mean she looks like she's a Christian she looks like she has a deep real relationship with God she's journeyed with Abraham her husband from uh, all that she knows in Genesis 12 to a place of insecurity she's trusting God but when push comes to shove what is she really worshipping Verse 2. The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Verse 5. Then she turns on a sixpence. I mean, it's kind of her idea. Abraham went along with it. But look at verse 5. Are you responsible for the wrong? I'm suffering. I put my servant in your arms. The temperature goes through the roof in this discussion. The marriage guidance books need to be sought very urgently. It's you. It's your fault. It's your idea and so on. Sarah is rightly angry. She's deeply humiliated. She's struggling to piece it all together. She feels humiliation and shame and social disgrace over her barrenness and over Hagar's fruitfulness I mean she's got what I was promised how does that work I gave you my servant and look at how she looks at me now she looks at me as if I was a piece of trash like something on the bottom of her shoe but lest we think it's all on Sarah who's being manipulative she's getting hot under the collar look how cold in his callousness Abraham is verse six she's your property Verse 6, she's your servant, she's in your hands. Do with her whatever you think best. Just get rid of her. At this point Ishmael has not been born, but just do whatever you want with her. This is the man who uh, Hebrews 11 holds up as a paradigm of faith. Be like Abraham. And yet here's a man who says, do with her whatever you want. And the unborn child, so, so be it. If it gets destroyed, so be it. Verse 6, this is what Sarai did. She mistreated Hagar. Now that's the same word that we find in Exodus chapter 1 verse 11 where you've got the Israelites being horribly mistreated by Pharaoh because they're producing less bricks from less straw. And so he looks at the Egyptians and he brutalises them. So let's not think that Sarai is just slinging the odd horrible word. She may well be doing something physical to Hagar. That's highly likely. In other words, this very if you think it's bad in English you should read it in the original it's very very stark it's brutal this text proves to you that if you think the bible is a moral book that you go to for moral advice (laughs) that you turn up and you look for examples of who to follow the bible is not a book like that it's not about us and what we do It's about God and God's grace. Here are people who are doing everything they can to ruin God's promises. Here are people who are not taking God at his word and yet God pursues them by a grace they don't deserve, by a grace that they want to resist, by a grace that they don't even appreciate and yet God is still pursuing them and he does exactly the same to you and me. The Bible is not about what you do. It's not about us at all really it's all about God's grace and why he mercifully chooses to put his grace upon us to some degree is a mystery to us but it shows us what a great God he is there's no one like him look at verse nine and ten for the first time God speaks go back to your mistress and submit to her what a hard word that is you know the one who's been beating you (laughs) go back to her because I will bless you you can imagine God saying that and I want to make you into a great nation I'm going to give you more than you ever dared ask or imagine, but you need to trust me, says God. I know you're a slave. I know that you're a fugitive. I know your future is very uncertain. In fact, your life is on the line, but I will protect you. I will protect you. When uh, Sarai's jealousy returns in chapter 21, when Abraham gets a a flea in the ear and says, send her packing, God again comes and rescues her. So when your culture tells you something, you must have this or you're a no one, you must have that or you're not a somebody until you get it. What is it for Sarai? It's God or the baby. And when it's God or the baby, when it's taking God at his word or a baby, when it's God in his promises and trusting him or getting a baby by every means, God gets elbowed out of her life very, very quickly. A baby is far more important to Sarai and the cultural shame that can be avoided and trusting God and taking him at his word. What is it for you? What is that one thing, as a Christian, that when push come to shove, if it was that or your relationship with God, God would be elbowed out of your life? What is it on a daily basis, if you're trying to spend time with God, praying, but you've got time, but it's just not a priority, what is that one thing that's elbowing God out of your life? because that is your true God. That's the harsh lesson from the story of Abraham and Sarai. Here we've got God elbowed out of Sarai's life because what's most important to her is a baby. Whatever that non-negotiable is in your life, you're a slave to something. What is your real God? That's what the uh, slave challengingly teaches us and so does the aging couple. But last of all, we've got this mysterious friend this mysterious friend that appears, another character, another thread to Paul, as a slave, a couple, and a mysterious friend. Look at the end of chapter 16. It's quite interesting from verse 7. Hagar returns back into the place of danger and insecurity, and someone appears and turns her life around. I mean, the man in her life has not protected her, Abraham. Verse 21 again, they're in the desert. Here's a Hagar now with Ishmael, young baby. Completely vulnerable, unable to help themselves. And yet, someone comes, a mysterious someone comes and intervenes in the situation and turns their life around. And this mysterious figure, we've met them before, is the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Who is this person? There's a couple of things we need to see. Angels in the Bible come at very particular points. And so we see loads of angels at Christmas as uh, Jesus is born into the world from the womb of Mary. And there's a great uh, cacophony of sound in the sky. You see uh, angels uh, in the garden after the tomb has been rolled away and Jesus has been raised from death to life again by his father. You see an angel in the book of Revelation. And whenever you see angels in the Bible, they say, don't bow down to me, you should be worshipping God. Don't worship me, I'm a created being. I'm not the Lord, don't bow down to me and so on. But look at what happens here. Verse 10 and 11. This is the angel of the Lord And the angel of the Lord sounds like they're speaking as if they're not an angel but they're God himself. I will make you great. This angel is talking like he's God. He's not just an angel. He's the angel of the Lord. I mean God says I will bless you. I'll multiply your descendants. Uh, Other times he says I'll give you a land. And it's as if this angel is saying exactly the same thing because he is. It's traumatic when you come into God's presence, isn't it? Dave very helpfully opened up Genesis 15 last week and there's all the, uh, the symbolism and the reality of God's glory and majesty and presence. There's fire and there's lightning and there's smoke and there's thunder. All this normal language that we see in the Bible for God's glory and majesty. No one can come near to God. And yet here you have God coming close to Hagar this vulnerable person who no one is caring for. They're in this horrible situation. And how on earth can the God of might and majesty and purity and holiness come near to anyone? How is that possible? Look at how accessible God is. That that she, Hagar, this outcast, actually names God. She's the first person in the Bible to name God. Normally God names other people. There's this dialogue between this slave woman She's on the run and the God of the heavens. How is this possible? Years later in the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. The one you seek, the angel of the covenant, will come into his temple. And in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus comes and says exactly the same words and says, it's me, I've come to rescue you. I'm the one through me, the glory of God can come near and yet you will not be destroyed, you'll be safe. I mean, from every aspect of Ishmael's life, he's been an outsider. Have you thought about that? What horrible life Ishmael has had. He feels really sorry for the guy. He's driven out of his father's house when he's uh, still in the womb. When he's been given birth to, he's under attack physically from thirst. He's also under attack from Sarai. Get out. That's in Genesis chapter 21. And yet what happens at uh, almost what looks like the end of his life, but it's just the beginning? Genesis chapter 21, verse 17 says, the Lord has heard the cry of the boy. And how is that possible? How can the God of holiness and purity and might and majesty come to someone such as him? God in heaven can hear the cries of this vulnerable baby boy because centuries later another poor woman got an angel at the birth of a baby and she was hearing these words, you shall bear a son and he shall be called. And when her baby was born into the world, he experienced just the same thing as Ishmael. He was driven out of his father's house. He experienced rejection, loneliness. He came unto his own and his own received him not. In fact, his own father forsook him on the cross. My God, my God, where are you? And yet, God the Father heard Abraham's son's cry. Sarah didn't deserve to have this baby. Look at the life that she lived. Look at the damage she did to Hagar. Abraham certainly didn't deserve it. Look at the way he uh, abdicated his responsibilities. And yet, look at what's said. Why does God keep hearing their cries? Why will he hear my cries? Why will he hear your cries? Because he didn't hear his son's cries. He turned his back on his son so that he could hear every cry that we ever cry. He turned his back on his baby boy so that he'll never turn the back, his back on us. And when that moves you, when you see what Jesus did for us and in our place and for us, that becomes the central thing of your life. That has power to change you. That has power f- to free you. I mean, think of Hagar again. Hagar, she's uh, an Egyptian, It's not Hebrew. Uh, She's a woman, not a man. She's a slave, not a free person. Um, She's not of the chosen line and yet God hears her cry. She's the first person in the Bible to name him. This is the God who just sifts the stars through his fingers and yet she says, he notices me. She was so excited. She was thrilled. Christian friend, how much more should we be thrilled? God does not just notice us. He died for us. That's how much he values you and me. If Hagar was excited, how much should I be? How much should you be? This is what Genesis 16 and 21 are all about. The grace of God to Abraham, he doesn't deserve it. Sarai doesn't deserve it. Neither does Hagar, neither does Ishmael, neither do you, neither do I.